Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Man, how you doing? Oh, there you is. I um, I'm super excited about today. Um, but I want you to just look over at uh, your neighbor real quick um, and say to them, "Buckle up, Buttercup." <laughs> Go ahead. I want to know who who got to say it to Bill Pepper. That's kind of exciting. Like, "Buckle up, Buttercup." Um, as a As a kid, maybe you heard this, I heard this (laughs) quite often, (laughs) Uh, but as parents, we say things like, um, hey, it's time for some discipline to happen here, whatever that looks like for you. And and so we we say things like, um, I just want you to know, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And as a kid, you're like, that's stupid. Like, why don't we just swap then? Um, (laughs) Here, you hand that to me and we'll find out, right? Like, um, but I just want you to know today that this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Um, <laughs> uh, there's some things we're going to dig into. And I think something you need to know on the front end is that um, that is true when it comes to what Jesus wants to do in your life, except for its past tense. It already hurt him more than it could ever possibly hurt you. And yet he was willing to pay a certain price so that you could experience real freedom, real life. Um, I've been assigned, and I don't know why I was given this assignment, because it's super awkward, but I just want to say thank you to all the other pastoral staff, because I don't know if you know this, but at least three of them have been on the platform already this morning, Paul and Pete and Jonas, at least for now, we're still letting him be a pastor. Um, and, uh, but somehow this fell to me, and they said, you need to announce, this is so weird, that it's Pastor Appreciation Month. <laughs> Whatever. Like, <laughs> which I think is interesting, because October, apparently, I did not know this until this year, <laughs> October is Pastor Appreciation Month, but it's also Satan Appreciation Month. It's when Halloween happens. Uh, just, uh, okay, never mind. Uh, we're going to move on real quick, like, you can have your debates afterwards with yourself at home. Um, okay, um, we're going to jump. We should have jumped in sooner, but we're going to jump in now. Here we go. Um, I want to share a passage of Scripture with you that I've actually um, found is one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture that I've come across for a few reasons, but it's found in Romans chapter 8, and it's verses 27 and 29. And just to give you a little bit of context, the book of Romans is written to the Romans, 
they weren't super creative back then when they were naming books. So typically when you see a title for a book in the Bible, not always, but you could, you could conclude that the book of Timothy is letters written to Timothy or Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people and Romans is one written to the Romans. And they are not the chosen people, right? The Hebrews have been the chosen people. But I want you to listen to the description in Romans 8.27 about the invitation uh, to everyone. The Spirit pleads for us. I just want to pause there for a moment. This is talking about the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is actually pleading on your behalf and my behalf, right? The Holy Spirit pleads for us in harmony with God's own will. So first of all, you're not alone. There's someone who's like cheering for you, contending for you, pleading with the Father on your behalf. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them, which is an extraordinary and often really hard to believe statement. He doesn't say everything that happens in your life is good. He doesn't say that the evil things people do are good. He says God uniquely has this capacity to take anything that you have experienced in life and turn it into something that could be to your benefit, which is really hard to believe depending on what you've experienced in life. And yet, it is absolutely a declaration. And in fact, the Spirit is contending that this will happen for you. For his purposes, for them, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. And if this is true, I just want to tell you, before we get going into the stuff we're going to be covering in the next few moments, um, your expectations should be through the roof for what God wants to do in your life. And I think often we've let our expectations level out. We had these great experiences maybe early on, and then we decided that's all there is. That was great. Now here I am. What's next for my life? But According to this, there's this ongoing journey, this ongoing contending for you, and things God wants you to discover that he is actually working out for your good so that you could be more like his son. You're not done, right? Okay, let's close with a word of prayer. No, um, last week, we've been in this series, Dissatisfied, A Holy Discontent. Um, and last week, as I was teaching on um, uh, worship and relationships, I got to the relationship piece, and I'd made a couple of statements um, about why men in particular tend to sabotage our relationships. Now, this um, belief that I will always end up eventually discovering something about someone that will disqualify them from being in my inner circle of trust and relationship and friendship, right? And, and what I just I shared a few thoughts in relationship to this idea. Um, relationships can be difficult because you're in them, and none of us are perfect, right? Every relationship has two imperfect people in it. That's always true. And if you're waiting for imperfections to reveal themselves, they will every time. I actually don't think that's the reason that we sabotage our relationships. And as I was speaking last week, I just really began to sense, and by third service, I had landed the plane with the Lord. Um, and I was like, we're not moving on to the next two things. I actually sensed the Lord was saying, I want you to come back and I want you to spend some time talking as a family about identity. Because the reality is that there are things you've experienced in life 
that have shaped the way you view yourself, God, and others, that actually shape the way that you are living. And they have to do with lies that we believe about who we are. In fact, you see it in the Garden of Eden. It's actually the first attack that Lucifer brings. He comes to Adam and Eve and he says, did God really say? He's not necessarily attacking God. He's attacking their identity. He's saying, you can't trust God. His intentions for you aren't good. And Adam and Eve believe it, and destruction is the result. And so we're going to spend some time today digging into um, the why we respond the ways that we respond. So here's how I would say it. This is sort of a paraphrase of what I said last week. Often the reason we sabotage our relationships has little to do with the imperfections in others and more to do with the insecurities in us. So we find reasons not to trust other people, but what we really do, and you can see it in your life, what we really do is we find reasons to sabotage every relationship we're in the closer they get to knowing who we are. And if I could identify what's really going on, I could actually begin to enjoy and participate in real, deep, meaningful relationships, in real, deep, meaningful worship, in real growth, and in real kingdom participation. This identity issue is at the core of all of it, which I've been asking myself the question over the past several years, what would it look like to live my life as though I had nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to gain from a place of total security? Which brings me to my title, License and Registration, Please. How many here were triggered as you heard just that phrase? Yeah, yeah, my wife is triggered when she hears that phrase because the number of times she's heard that phrase when I'm driving is a lot. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's profiling. I don't like it at all. Um, uh, the reason maybe it has an impact or certain thoughts come to mind or memories come to mind is actually um, because our reactions are typically because of past interactions or multiple interactions that we've had. There's some past experience that causes a response in us when we um, hear or see certain things. And this is true in the area of um, our relationships. And so last week, we started to look into the um, story of Jacob and Esau a little bit. And I want to come back because I've observed some things in that story that I personally had never really seen before or picked up on the depth of what God is doing in this moment with this guy named Jacob. And so last week we talked about how um, Jacob, when he was born, was given his name, and his name literally means deceiver. His name means pathological liar. His name means deceiver, supplanter. In other words, he will do anything in his power to take your power and your position from you. He's born and given this name at birth when he doesn't know heads from tails. But he grows up in this identity, knowing clearly why he's given the name that he's given. It's identified in the beginning. And then he actually begins to live out of that identity. And he does exactly what his name says that he is. When the moment presents itself, he he deceives his brother um, Esau. He actually capitalizes on a moment when Esau is weak and takes the most precious thing from Esau that he had ever had in his possession, and that is his birthright. 
Um, that is the firstborn in the family, which comes with all of these practical privileges. He gets twice the inheritance. He's the patriarch in the family when father dies, and he's the spiritual leader of the family. And in a moment of weakness, Jacob robs him of this. And Esau is furious over this. And now Jacob's dad is about to die, and he is going to use his relationship with his mother in order to get the blessing from his father. And so his father is almost completely blind at this point, and Jacob dresses up like Esau. Esau is like a man's man. You know, he's out in the wilderness hunting. Jacob is a mama's boy. Um, That's just how it sort of describes it. I'm not saying if you like cooking, you're a mama's boy, but whatever. Like, um, but, but Jacob is with his mother and they have this unique relationship and she helps him deceive his father into blessing him with the blessing that was actually for Esau. So now Esau comes in, discovers the plot, and he is infuriated. In fact, he's so angry that Jacob's mother says to Jacob, the only reason that your brother has not killed you yet is he is waiting for your dad to die. And as soon as that's done, in fact, she says, his only joy right now is plotting to kill you when dad's dead. You need to run. And so instead of repairing the relationship that he had damaged, he heads out. He goes all the way to his uncle's house, Laban, which is a long ways away. And at Laban's house, he begins to work and serve Laban, um, ends up working for him for 21 years, and Laban deceives Jacob. But Jacob is being blessed by God with all of his um, animals and all of those sorts of things. And so Laban's kids begin to be suspicious of Jacob. You can see how relationships deteriorate, right? And they're suspicious of Jacob, and they accuse him of supplanting Laban, deceiving Laban. And Jacob begins to feel like everyone's against him. And so rather than working the relationship out, at night he packs everything up and he takes off on the run. And he's gone. And this has been the story of his life. Every relationship that he's been in has fallen apart. And it really doesn't seem to matter whether he's the one who has done wrong or he's accused of doing wrong. He has been living out of this identity. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. And so he's running back home. And there's trouble waiting at home because he's never gone back and dealt with this relationship that was broken all the way back here. And so he concocts a plan. He has all of his, um, his family. He has all of his servants. He has all of his animals. And he ends up putting everything out in front of him just in case Esau shows up and decides he's going to kill him. And this is literally what Jacob says. At least I'll have time to get away because he will be killing all the people out in front of me. It's the epitome of selfishness, right? In fact, he sends a group of servants ahead to see if Esau is coming. They go ahead, they see Esau, they talk with Esau, they come back to Jacob and they're like, we saw your brother. He's coming out to meet you with 400 soldiers. (laughs) And Jacob's terrified. So he's going to ramp up his self-preservation efforts. And we're gonna pick the story up right here. Genesis 32, verse seven. Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He thought, if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. If they can't, perhaps the next group can escape. If they can't, perhaps the next group can escape. Surely the last man standing will be able to escape. So listen to what he does next. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. 
after taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. He has effectively put everything between him and his past that is catching up with him. Between him and the damage done back here. And it is absolutely in hopes that he will not have to pay the consequences for his past failures. But he's okay with everyone else paying the price, including his family. You talk about selfishness. And now he's all by himself on this side of the river, cozied up in his Arctic oven tent. Genesis 32. This left Jacob all alone in camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. You see it later in this passage, but also in Hosea 12, 3 through 5. If you've never read this before, you just read it and it says, a man came and wrestled with him, which seems super weird in the middle of the night. Right? Like, what's the man doing in the woods? Why does he want to wrestle? What's he doing in Jacob's camp? Why does Jacob say yes? But what we're told in Hosea and later on in this passage is that this is a, at a minimum, an angelic representation of the Lord, but he is actually wrestling with God in this moment. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. I've read this passage numerous times, and I've always thought, that's kind of a weird thing to do. Like, why not wrench his shoulder out of socket? Or why, I mean, what's the deal with... In fact, this passage is so significant to this day, the Jewish people will not eat the tendon that is found in the hip socket of the lamb because of what God did in this moment. And this week, it dawned on me for the first time, maybe, that what's effectively happened, and maybe the translation that you've read it in says, um, made him lame, touched his hip socket and made him lame. What has effectively happened is that for all of Jacob's scheming and planning to get away and protect himself, he can't even run away now. The Lord has cornered him. And so even if Esau came in and killed everyone else and then crossed the river, Jacob can't escape from his past failures. You ever felt like the Lord's just cornered you and you can't get away? And in this moment, it has to dawn on Jacob as the sun is coming up. I'm finished. Like I've I've schemed my whole life. I've manipulated my whole life. And now all of a sudden, in this moment, God has put me in a position that I cannot escape from my past. I'll tell you a secret. There is only one reason that God would corner you. It's not to embarrass you or shame you or guilt you. There's only one reason that God corners you and I. Because he cares deeply about us. This is what Jacob is going to discover. Then the man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. I've always thought that was a weird question in response to will you bless me. Right? Like, you know my name. Here's what's happening. Jacob, tell me who you are again. This is who I've always been. I don't know if my parents gave it to me. I know they gave me the name. 
I know I've lived in this identity my whole life. I know it's ruined every relationship that I've had along the way. I know it's coming back to roost now, and I'm terrified of what's going to be produced because of the things I've experienced in the past. Okay, I'll tell you what what my name is. My name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. This this interaction, tell me what your name is. And here's how I would describe it. If I will not speak the truth, about who I have been in my brokenness, I actually cannot fully experience who I am to be in Christ. And we spend much of our lives terrified of acknowledging who we really are, who we've believed we really are. I actually believe that today, as uncomfortable as it may feel for you, Jesus is wanting to corner you. And until you and I are willing to tell the truth about who we've been in our brokenness, we actually cannot fully experience who we are to be in the wholeness of Christ. So Jacob replied, Jacob. There it is. That's my name. That's that's who I am, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. That as a result of this wrestling match, as a result of this moment, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to tell you who I say that you are. But until you're willing to acknowledge who you have been, I cannot tell you who you were created to be. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with men and with God and have prevailed. And then listen to Jacob. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Because I think often I'm in that same position. Like when God corners me, he's like, okay, Jonathan, tell me who you really are. Let's deal with this. Let's, let's wrestle this to the ground because I want to speak truth to the lies that you believed about yourself. And in that moment, I'm like, yeah, but what about them? Don't you know their name? Right? Or someone who's in my life, who's a truth teller in my life, and they're cornering me, they're challenging me with all of the things they can see that I don't want to acknowledge, and I'm just like, oh yeah, well, you know, you're not all that great either. He says, what's your name? Jacob said, I love this response, why do you want to know my name? The man replied, and then he blessed Jacob there and was gone. Like, Jacob, this isn't about me, this is about you. Like, you don't need to know my name. I'm the sovereign God of all the universe. Trust me, I'm not insecure. In fact, later, a guy named Moses will get to know my name, and my name is just I am. I'm completely secure in my identity. I've got nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to gain. I can actually love you in this moment because I am. It's not about me. It's about you, Jacob. I want to contrast this story of Jacob with another familiar story found in John chapter 13. And if you've um, been in a communion service before, um, the Lord's Supper, it's a really familiar passage of Scripture. And it's the story of Jesus and his last supper with his disciples. We've got paintings that are done about it. But there's some details I want you to pick up on in this story. And they're actually found right in the very beginning of the story. And I want to contrast it with this insecurity, this broken identity that Jacob lives in versus the identity that Jesus lives in. So John chapter 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world. And he knew that he was going to return to his father. 
He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. In other words, Jesus knew he'd come from God. He knew who his daddy was, and he knew he was going back to God, and that that moment was upon him, and he knew that he had done his job. He had been responsible to love his disciples, even all the way up until this very moment when they're sitting at the table. He has loved them to the very end. It goes on, it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus fully knows that he's being betrayed by one of his own disciples. It's already happened in this moment. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him, past tense, authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. Here's what it's saying. In this moment, as they're seated at the table, Jesus knows he's the most powerful person in the room. He knows all the authority is his. He knows who's betrayed him. He knows who hasn't betrayed him, but they're going to betray him. Jesus knows that he has come from God. He's going back to God, and he knows he's done his job. He is completely A-OK in his identity. How do you react to a challenge to your authority when you know you're the most powerful person in the room. We all have those moments. Maybe it's with our kids. Oh, yeah, you're going to disrespect me. You watch me bow up. You want to see how big I can get? You want to see how loud I can get? Right, well, what do you do in those moments when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? I'll tell you what Jesus does in this moment. Here's the reason he does it. It's because his identity is not wrapped up in his job title. So Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. I'll tell you a secret. Um, I'm not, well, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't really care for foot washing services, but I'm not opposed to them. We did them a lot when I was a kid growing up. It always seemed a little weird because like I had washed my feet that morning and I'd been wearing shoes all day. But, but I get the symbolism. But Jesus isn't trying to create a new ordinance for the church right now. What Jesus is actually doing is he's just meeting a real need. That They'd been walking in sandals or maybe barefoot all day long. Who knows what they had stepped in, but it was customary when you went to a house to eat that there would be a servant or someone in a lowly position there who would wash your feet off because you were going to be reclining on these cushions at low tables and your feet were going to be on the cushions. They were going to be near someone else. And so it was just customary. And they had already been eating their meal and none of the disciples had taken the initiative to be the ones to wash feet. It was such a lowly thing to do. And yet in this moment, in full knowledge, he's the most powerful person in the room. He knows where he came from and he knows where he's going. What Jesus does in this moment is he gets up from the table and he washes the disciples' feet. And the disciples protest, Jesus, you are way too important to be doing this job because their identities are wrapped up in their positions. Their identities are wrapped up in how other people respect them. Jesus, he hasn't got any of that going on. He knows exactly who he is. In fact, Peter protests, you should not do this, Lord. And Jesus is like, well, nobody else did, Pete. Right, like, you should not be doing, not Pete, Monday. Um, you should not be doing this, Lord. Well, nobody else did. Jesus doesn't have to defend himself or anything. He, he can love and serve and live from a place of total security because the role that he's playing says nothing about who he is. 
not creating a new ordinance. He's modeling a way of living and loving and serving. What's so crazy, and, I, and I'm glad none of you are like this, and I know I'm not like this, but as soon as this tender moment passes with Jesus, and they're on their way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, to the Mount of Olives. They're on their way up there. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to die the next day. He knows all this. And on their way up to the place where they're going to pray, they begin to have a debate about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Like right on the heels of this, they fall right back into their old identity. And so they're arguing, oh no, I got to sit on his right-hand side at the table. Clearly he likes me best. Oh yeah, well, I was leaning against him. You weren't leaning against him. Oh yeah, well, right? They're having this debate about who's gonna be the greatest. It's so easy to get caught up in all the wrong things when it comes to identity. Now, instead of loving and serving, right, they actually are functioning out of insecurity and selfishness. What would it be like to live your life from a place of love and security. Um, recently, very recently, I was out moose hunting, um, and before I left, I had found one of those garages in a box, you know what I'm talking about? Um, and, and so I had uh, said to Kitri, hey, if you could grab this um, while I'm gone, that would be awesome. She also grabbed a greenhouse for herself. Um, and, and so I got back home, and actually this weekend, um, I went out and I assembled the thing in the rain, which is just frustrating anyways, but um, clearly I was not paying all that much attention as I assembled my garage in a box, because it says right on the box that it's actually a shed in the box. And I took this picture this morning of my new garage in a box. Um, you can, yeah, there it is. Just so you know, my car is pulled all the way in. Um, the, the nose of my car is touching the back of my new garage. Um, the only benefit that I have found is the fact that at least the driver's side door is underneath the covering, and so I'm dry while I get in. Everyone else is getting hosed, and if the wind's blowing sideways at all, like, I, I don't know what, I thought my car was smaller. I, I have no, my snow machine doesn't even fit in it. I, I'm just completely frustrated. In fact, one of our staff this morning, they're like, well, why don't you just get a tarp and extend it? I'm like, because I don't live in the Butte. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, Homer. I was thinking about it this morning as I was getting in my car, still frustrated over the whole incident. Um, uh, I, as I'm getting in the car, um, I'm thinking to myself, I, I think a lot of us in our Christian life, we like got into this thing and then we've just sort of settled on the reality that I guess this is all there is. And what I want you to know, it isn't. Like, like, you don't have to settle for less than what Jesus has actually saved you for. And I think we're prone to do that. And experience was great back there. I guess that's all there is. I'll just buckle up and live the rest of my Christian life. And what I've discovered over the past few years is that that is not Jesus' intentions for you and I. He has more than you could ever imagine in store for you. And you were not created to settle for less. That he actually really can lead you to a place of joy a place of peace, a place of confidence, all of those things. It's not only possible, but it's also God's plan for us. Which brings me to IEP. If you don't know what an IEP is, I wrote it on the screen. It's an individual education plan. If you have an IEP or if you've experienced this with your kids, you know that it actually can be kind of embarrassing 
because it tends to be these limitations you're told that you have so that you can get services that you actually need. It's actually a challenging process to go through, these psyche valves and all this testing, and all of it's done, and often from the kid's perspective, it's done so that you know what your limits are, at least that's how it feels. I was listening to a podcast recently um, uh, with a guy named Joey Spears, and as he began to talk, he identified that um, he struggled um, with severe ADHD, Um, and I was immediately tuned in. I was glad he said it early in the podcast, because I would have lost interest after that if you know, it doesn't take me long. And, and often if you're someone who, um, who really deals with ADHD, you have to make these qualifier statements, you know, because apparently everyone has ADHD now. Um, so you say things like, um, no, diagnosed ADHD. So like my mom was in the last service. My mom is a pediatric nurse practitioner, like worked for the health department. Like when the diagnoses came out, like back in the 80s or whatever, I can remember her coming home being like, hey, I know what's wrong with us. Like... <laughs> And so she gave me these tools and tricks. I actually, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I was like, oh, okay, I may need to look into some medication because my level of responsibilities, the things that were on my plate, the level of stress in my life, like I'm going to try something else. But I had never tried anything else until that point. I just knew that this is clearly. So as he identifies it, he begins to identify the ways it manifested itself in elementary school. And in elementary school, um, he was always at odds with authority figures, And often it was related to the sense of justice, like that's wrong and I'm going to speak out and you're distracted by so many things and it's really hard to dial in on anything else that all the other kids... Not everyone struggles with this. My wife, my wife was promoted, like she got... (laughs) She was in, I think it was first grade and they moved her to third grade. Yeah, they were never going to do that with me, (laughs) like, or with Joey. And as he's talking about his experience... He identifies this moment um, in class with a teacher at a, I'm going to preface it with this, Christian school, and the teacher gets so mad at him that she picks up one of those blue chairs with the metal legs and chucks it at him across the room. I'm like, I think my mom felt that way every day. Like, it also told me this is probably a Pentecostal Christian school, because you can get away with that there, but um, anyway, so, so he's... Um, it, so he's had, and now here's what he's thinking. He's thinking, um, I'm coming into eighth grade. If I can just make it through eighth grade, maybe high school will be different for me because his whole life, his track record has told everyone who he is and what he's like, and he knows what his limitations are, right? I'm not going to surpass these limitations. And he comes into class, uh, eighth grade class. It's the teacher who threw the chair at him. And before class starts, she pulls out a list and she reads a bunch of names off the list. And she says, if I read your name off of this list, um, you need to take your chair, which is kind of funny, and then you need to go over to the new portable we put outside and you're going to be meeting out there. He's like, it was a bunch of the bad kids and then a few kids who accidentally got lumped in with us. Um, And he discovers in a moment exactly what the list of students was. He goes out to the portable, and there's a new teacher in there. He's never met him before. His name is Mr. Norris. I was like, Chuck? But it wasn't. Um, And he meets Mr. Norris, um, and one at a time, Mr. Norris calls the students up to the front of the room. He calls them up to the front of the room, and he has this conversation that nobody else can hear. And finally, it's Joey's turn, and Joey heads up to the front of the room, and he holds up this stack of papers that are all piled and stapled and paper clipped together, and he says to Joey, do you know what this is? And Joey knows what it is immediately. It's his IEP, which he's embarrassed about. It's the list of limitations. It's it's the walls. It's the barriers. It's his track record in school. And a teacher looks at him and he says, all your life, 
people have told you that these are walls. And I'm telling you they're not. These are hurdles. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you how to run and jump over them. And he's like, that changed everything for the rest of my experience. I mean, he's just wildly successful now as an entrepreneur and in marketing and branding. And Can I tell you a secret? Those things in your life that you've been viewing as barriers to your spiritual growth, you've been viewing them as barriers to your relationship, you've been viewing them as barriers to your ability to worship Jesus, what I want you to know is they aren't barriers, they're just hurdles. And Jesus wants to teach you how to run and jump over them. And those things that you and I view as walls in our lives, walls of impossibility, Jesus often sees them as wells of future success that you will draw from. Your expectation for wholeness and health should be through the roof because Jesus never corners you unless he cares about you. So you ready? This is the buckle up buttercup part. I want to share something with you. It's a process that I've been in for the past few years um, that has radically changed my perspective in regards to wholeness and health. About three and a half years ago, um, I, I realized I was starting to fray around the edges. I, I felt really vulnerable. I felt like... Um, I don't know why I'm so emotional. And there was a specific moment where I was um, at one of our men's conferences and all these men are gathered there. Maybe you were there. Um, but it's the last night I've done my part. We're talking about how do I um, become the kind of man that God would trust with his reputation in my family and my community. And so it's the last night. We're praying over men. There's just crazy cool stuff happening. They're signing these T-shirts that we had gotten for them. And then... Um, and I'm not out there praying over men or hanging out with everyone else who's part of that. I'm in this back room, and I can hear what's going on out there, but I'm in this back room, and I'm just weeping. And, and I'm overcome with this emotion. And what I'm thinking in my mind is, um, I'm in this all alone. Nobody understands the pressures I'm under. Nobody understands what I'm going through. I'm in this all alone, and nobody's coming to help. And I wondered, where is that coming from? Because I could pause and say, it's not true. i got lots of people in my life who love me, who care about me, who are contending for me, who are praying for me. But yet, what I'm feeling emotionally in that moment is I'm all... And what I wanted to know is, where does that come from? I'm actually believing something about my identity. In fact, I can tell you what I was believing about my identity. If people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If people really knew me, they wouldn't follow me. I began this journey of trying to get to the core issue. Why do I believe that? In fact, it has shaped most of my life in ministry unknowingly. I, I realized in that moment, every five years I moved on to do something new, which is interesting because this year is year number five for me here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> every five years I had moved on to something new, and I always chalked it up to being an entrepreneur. I want to try new things. I want to come in and work on something and then hand it off to somebody else. And in that moment, what I realized is I actually believe at around five years, I've worn out my welcome. At about five years, you've heard all my stories. You've heard everything I have to say, and you just have realized I'm not all that great. And so before you realize it, 
I think I'll move on to some place where they think I'm valuable. If people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If people really knew me, they wouldn't want to follow me. And I joined up with a friend of mine, and we began the journey of discovering why I believe things like that and where do they come from. And so what I want to do is I want to sort of unpack this process for you. I've got four circles here, and they're going to represent these sort of four layers of these lies that we believe. The, the first one is um, uh, what I call damaging experiences. And here's what's interesting about damaging experiences. In your past, you may have had some of these. In fact, um, for many people that I know, there were precise moments where this thing happened. I was raped, or I was sexually abused, or my parents divorced, or, but you could identify an event in your life where you made some decisions about other people, about God, and unknowingly about yourself in that moment. But that wasn't my story. Like, if you've met my parents, believe me, they got their issues. <laughs> but they're amazing people. Like, I could not identify an event in my life where they had done some evil thing uh, to me. But when it dawned on me that it doesn't have to be an event, it can be an eventual lee, that over the course of time I could experience a certain behavior or reaction or statement over and over again, and I could come to a conclusion about myself, about others, and about God, I could identify eventualies in my life. And what I realized that there were these events, it didn't actually matter if they were a crisis or whether they were cumulative over time, they actually fed me a lie about who I was, and I had to deal with it. There are these damaging experiences. The second thing that those lead to are these distorted perspectives, the things we believe about ourselves, about God, and about others. If people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If people really knew me, they wouldn't follow me. And then those distorted perspectives lead to dysfunctional emotions. Now, when I describe this, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You may already know what I'm talking about, but there are those moments when I'm at a 10 emotionally, but I should be at a 2. It's not that I should have no emotion about this, but to the people around me, they look at the moment I find myself in, and they're like, why are you at a 10? So you're driving. Um, it, now it happens in Wasilla, um, but let's just pretend it's Anchorage since that's 30 minutes from Alaska. Um, and, you're, and somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? And you are like, ah! Right? I mean, you instantly go to Rage Monster. You're like, flying the double bird at them. You're trying to get in front of them so you can open the sunroof and throw golf balls out of it. Like you're doing whatever you can to pay them back for cutting you off in tra traffic. And everyone else is in the car like, simmer down, Charlie Brown. Like what's going on here? Like you should not be at a 10. This is a two moment. In fact, what you're thinking to yourself, and you may not identify it yet, but in some form or another, they've touched on one of those lies. They don't respect me. So I'm going to show them, right? But something is causing this emotional response, and you can't exactly put your finger on what it is. You just know that it's disproportionate to the crime in that moment. And here's the thing, and I've got several of these in my life. I'm, since we're just being transparent with each other, that's what I hate about my job. Like, since we're sharing our stories. Uh, for those of you who know Luke Epperson, um, uh, and some of his family is in the room right now. If you know anything about Luke, um, Luke is brilliant. Like, I could say, of the people I personally know, Luke is probably one of the most intelligent people I know. In fact, I was just talking to him a couple of days ago, and I was thinking to myself again, man, that guy's really smart, and I'm an idiot. Um, but 
But we were in a meeting right in this room over here in the cafe um, uh, quite a while back. And, um, and in the meeting, uh, there's about 10 of us there. And I'm, I'm bringing up a quote I want to use on a Sunday. And it's from a guy named Robert Kiyosaki. Um, and it's in his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And so I blurt out this quote and I say what I want to use it for. And Luke says, as soon as I'm done, in front of everyone... I didn't say he had emotional intelligence. I just said he's really intelligent. No. Luke says in front of everyone, he says, um, that's not actually what Robert Kiyosaki said. Now, here's what I know. The moment Luke opened his mouth, he's right and I'm wrong. Because <laughs> I have the worst memory in the world. Like, I know Luke's right, and yet internally, and I'm really good at masking it. I've mastered the art of keeping it in check externally most of the time. Uh, and so my staff has no idea that I just went to a 10 when it should be a 2. But I'm on my phone Googling, looking for anybody who quoted it the way I quoted it so I could come back and say, oh, right here it says that, right? Like, I have no idea why I'm doing this. But I recognize in that moment I'm having an emotional response that is disproportionate to what's actually going on. The only reason Luke would say that that's not what Robert Kiyosaki said is because he didn't want me to embarrass myself on a Sunday, which is what I was going to do anyways. But, like, <laughs> I'll find a different way. Um, so... so I have these dysfunctional emotional responses. And sometimes I can identify that there's something back there just by that emotional response. So those dysfunctional emotions then ultimately lead to these destructive habits. And these are all kinds of things. Um, you could probably identify them in your own life. Often we think of them as really big deals. We think of them as um, addiction, right, to pornography or drugs. But it could also be rage in your life or obsessive eating or... Uh, compulsive lying or sabotaging all the relationships in your life. But there are destructive habits that are born out of all of these things. And, and here's the crazy thing for me. And maybe you're a picture person, so I don't know if you know this. I'm a super good artist. Super good. And I drew this quite a while back. You may have seen it before, but um, we'll go ahead and bring it up in case pictures are better for you and they help. More of a Picasso type, super good artist. Um, but on the bottom, if you were to think about the ocean and you were to think about surfing, which I love the ocean, everything about in it, right? Uh, the bottom, though, the contours of the bottom of the ocean are these damaging experiences. They're things that have happened in life that have laid a foundation for us. And built on top of that is the coral reef that grows. And depending on the size of those distorted perspectives, the wave of dysfunctional emotions that they push up at the surface, the closer you get to the beach, can be massive. And sometimes they're like jaws, right? Or some of these massive waves that big wave surfers go after, which brings me to these destructive habits. And we get ourselves out in those, trying to manage those, trying to live on those over and over and over again. But it produces this in our lives. Now, I want to go back to the circles because here's the reality. Often I can identify this dysfunctional emotion I'm experiencing or these destructive habits. Those seem fairly easy to put my finger on. And I could chase them back to experiences that I've had in my life. But here, here's the reality. Actually, the way I view all of those things comes back to my distorted perspectives. In fact, even the way that I view my past experiences are shaped by the distortions by the lies that I believed about myself, about God, and about others. That's actually where core identity is settled. And so what if, what if you could go 
and experience healing in those distorted perspectives. And I would have told you until two years ago that I actually did not believe that God could supernaturally heal those distortions. I'll tell you what I believed. I believe God wanted to give me tips and tricks for how to manage them. He wanted to teach me behavior modification, which actually ends up just being self-righteousness. I, I begin to harvest my value from your response to how I performed in this moment. And if I don't get it, then I'm right back at square one. I'm not valuable. God didn't actually want to teach me tips and tricks for how to manage these distortions. He actually wanted to speak truth to them and heal me. I'm just telling you, I don't know that I believed that for a really long time. And I am certain that it's true now. In fact, once that's healed, you could actually move on and experience in these dysfunctional emotions, normalized emotions, stabilized emotions. Like, you shouldn't be emotionless. You were created with emotions, but they should fit the reality of the situation based on the identity you've been given in Christ. You could actually experience um, the breaking off of these destructive habits. Many of us spend much of our lives trying to figure out how to break our habits rather than dealing with our identity. Because often those broken habits, those destructive habits are born out of an identity we're trying to run away from. And so we self-medicate. We do all kinds of things to prove that we're valuable that are actually really destructive things in our lives. And what God wants to do is see those things broken off, not on the surface, but at the core. Not behavior modification, but identity transformation. Oh, that's good, Pastor. I know, I know. It's been good for me. And so now here's the part that I don't know that I ever really understood, and I'm just going to end with this. Maybe. We'll see how it goes. What if, what if he could actually take those damaging experiences from the past and redeem them? We spend much of our lives fixated on forgiving the offenses and the wounding of the past, but Jesus' intention for those events will exceed your wildest expectations. I was with a friend a while back, and we were sitting and talking about why he believes certain things, these distortions about his value and how other people view him. And he identified two events in his life, really damaging events, events in which people had done evil to him. And as he identified those moments as the reason that he believes these things about himself and the ways interacted in relationships, it's like because of the uniqueness of those two events, immediately a passage of Scripture comes to my mind as we're talking. And it's a passage about Jesus. And it describes Jesus as experiencing exactly in the details what this person had experienced. And so I say to him, like, I want you to read this. And he reads it. And he's like, so I'm not the only one who experienced that. And instantly, he feels a connection with Jesus on a visceral, on a real level that he's never felt before because of the damage. And here's what struck me. Jesus does not intend 
for evil things to happen to you and I. In fact, that's not what Romans 8 says. But it does say that he can take anything and everything and redeem it for our good. And what I realized is that Jesus alone has the capacity to both be in the moment where you experienced damage and wounding and brokenness. And it has shaped your life up until this very moment. But Jesus alone has the capacity because he sees that moment and this moment right here, right now, as one moment. There's not the gap that you've experienced from Jesus' vantage point. From Jesus' vantage point, he can already see in the moment you experience it what he could do with your life if you would respond to him in this moment with it. It doesn't mean it wasn't evil. It doesn't mean that justice shouldn't be served. All it means is that Jesus knows that it's there and he alone has the capacity to turn it into your good in this moment. And it struck me for my friend, I'm like, Oh, Jesus saw this back here, but he also saw us right now, right here, and you connected to him in a way that you did not think you could ever be connected with him. And for that reason, he invites you to visit those moments and let him tell you the truth about who you are. It's why when we come into these places where, man, that was painful, In fact, in my situation, it actually doesn't even matter if I was right or if I was wrong about my parents' intentions or about the intentions of others. It actually doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is this is how I experienced it and it shaped who I believe that I am. And Jesus wants to meet you and speak truth to the lie that you have believed that has shaped the way that you live and love and serve others. And all I can tell you is that I have experienced healing. And what I know is there'll be 10 other things over the course of time. I'm not done with this. Things are going to come up over and over and over again in life. And what I know with confidence now is that Jesus already saw it coming and he has something to say about it. And he's only cornering me because he cares about me. And he's revealing in this moment something. My expectation should be through the roof that he can do it. Because according to... Romans 8, 28, I'm going to invite you to stand. Listen to what it says again. We know. Think about all the things that Jesus knew, and he could live in security in his identity. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew you in advance. And he chose you to become like his son. You may feel like you pulled into a garage in a box that's way too short for your life. I'm just telling you, you may pulled into the wrong garage because there's plenty of room for you inside of the life of Christ. The transformation that he wants to bring Don't you dare settle for less than what he saved you for. He is inviting you into deeper and deeper worship, relationship, growth, participation in his kingdom. I want to invite our prayer ministry teams to come. We're going to sing this last song together. And um, and here's what I want. I'm certain, because I've walked through this 
enough times myself that there are things that Jesus is speaking to you right now. Take advantage of this moment. We've actually asked extra prayer team ministry people to be here. And as we go into this song, take some time right now and let Jesus begin moving you forward. I would love to join with you in prayer, but I'm going to pray right now and then we're going to sing the song together. And then as soon as we're done with it, I have a present for you. Jesus, my expectation, my expectation is exceedingly high for what you want to do in these moments. Not just now, the journey you're inviting us into. And I would pray that you would speak truth to the lies that we believed and you would bring wholeness in those places that we only see brokenness. And would you do what only you can? In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.